Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So last week, we were in 1 Samuel 5 and 6, and where we left uh, the Philistines and the Israelites was the Philistines had had enough of this ark that belonged to Israel. It was time for them to go ahead and return it back to uh, Israel. They, the, the ark of God had been in Philistine possession for seven months and it had caused nothing but havoc. And so they essentially sent it back to Israel. They sent it to a town full of priests and the priests took the ark and they looked inside of it, which is basically, from our understanding, they're treating it in an unworthy, unholy manner. The people of God treated the ark of God in the same way that the Philistines did. So God brought judgment on them, and their reaction was the same as the Philistines. All right, we gotta get this thing out of here. So they sent it to another town called Kiriath-Jerim, just up the road, and there it stayed for about 20 years. And we're told at the very beginning of chapter seven in verse two, that it stayed at someone's house and all of Israel lamented the Lord for 20 years. So that's where we're gonna pick up our story today. If you'll open your Bibles and go to 1 Samuel chapter seven, we're gonna start in verse three. We'll also throw it up on the screen for you guys to follow along if you want. Uh, But um, I would encourage you to not just rely on this screen every week. It's handy so we're all on the same page, but go ahead and get yourself a Bible at home. A Bible on your phone is fine, but there's no substitute for a good old paper Bible because it can't, it can't notify you that someone's trying to reach you while you're reading it. It can't let you know that some big news event just happened and then you can click on it. There's no hyperlinks. You have to slow down and read slowly through your paper Bible. And so it's good to have a good one. We're reading through the ESV um, translation, but it's not the only one. It's a good one. I like it, um, but there's other good ones. The New American Standard is very good. The CSB is very good. NIV is very good. King James, if you, if it's very good if you're old school like that. Um, if you have a, a message Bible, that's fine, but just don't let it be your only Bible. Like, that's more of a, it's more like a commentary, really. It's good to read alongside, but just don't let that be your only Bible. I'd avoid the Passion Translation completely. Um, Yeah, I probably said too much. Let's go. (laughs) 1 Samuel 7, 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals, or Baals, and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, all right, gather at Israel, excuse me, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord 
and Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Sorry, I don't know why I'm getting choked up. This picture is powerful because what it does is it shows us what repentance looks like. And you can't miss this because this is really important. So after 20 years of the ark being in storage, of God's people acting like God's things are not very important and we're gonna put them in the back closet of some church and we're gonna hang choir robes over them and pretend that they don't exist. Guess what? The enemy started gaining a foothold during that season. So 20 years, Israel is ignoring God's commands. They didn't return the ark back to Shiloh. Some theologians think Shiloh was probably destroyed, but they didn't reestablish the tabernacle. There was no regular worship, and the whole country was in disarray for 20 years. We're told that Israel is lamenting, but no one's doing anything about it, and the Philistines are beginning to oppress them again. So in verse three, we see that Samuel steps up and calls the nation to repentance. And the nation responds, and they go to this city called Mizpah for a time of prayer and worship and repentance. And during this ceremony, Samuel, we're told, pours out water before the Lord. We're also told that he judged the people of Israel. Now this chapter is filled with symbolic representations of things that are happening on the inside that we can see on the outside, and the pouring out of the water is the first one. Why did, Is- why did Samuel gather Israel at Mizpah and then in front of the people pour out water before the people? Because he wanted the people to understand in a physical, tangible, observable way, what you're doing right now is like this. The pouring out of the water is symbolic of the people pouring out their hearts before the Lord. That's why that's there. And so the picture we have is the people of God gathered at this this place. Samuel is there leading the people in repentance, praying to the Lord about this repentance. There's worship, everyone's crying out, and Samuel's pouring out water as, as a symbolic gesture of the people's hearts and their prayers and all their emotions just being poured out before the Lord. And we're told that Samuel judged them. Now the word judging means leading them in the same way that it did in the book of Judges, but it also has this sense that he's discerning the sincerity of the people. That's what he's doing in judging them. So I want you to picture this. They're all standing there and they're crying out, but you can't tell if tears are real because humans don't know each other's hearts. So you can fake sincerity. You can raise your hands and cry and, and, and cry out and, and, get, you know, and get all emotional, but th- that's not an indication of real heart change because you can fake that. And so Samuel is giving the people representations of what's going on inside of them and judging is what's happening before my eyes, is, what's, is what I'm seeing lining up with what is going on inside of them. Are they really pouring out their hearts? I'm leading them, them in this direction and, I, and, and I'm trying to discern as their leader whether this is authentic or whether they're doing this to just kind of work up an emotion. But what I want to do 
before we move forward is I want to look at what Samuel called God's people to do in repentance. He says this phrase, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, so so if you claim that this is the thing that's really going on in the area of your life that I can't observe because I can't look at your heart, only the Lord knows your heart. If you are really returning to the Lord with all your heart, then you have to put away your idol worship. Now just a brief sidebar, he calls out the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth was a Canaanite goddess of fertility, also of love and war, and Baal, or Baal, was a Canaanite weather god. I'm gonna spare you the specifics, I'm sure that you could use your imagination, but I want you to understand what was going on with these idol worship that Israel was participating in. Idol worship was always, the participation took place on the top of mountains because ancient people believed that the tops of mountains is where the gods lived. That's where they resided. And so if you wanna meet with the foreign gods, you have to climb these mountains and go to where they live and that's where you build these temples these places of worship to these foreign gods. And some of their foreign gods, they had multitudes of them, but some of the ones that plagued Israel particularly was this female Canaanite god of fertility. And the reason why it plagued Israel so bad was because the way that you participated in worship was that you would go to the temple, solicit a prostitute, and you would participate in worship. You get my meaning? That was how God's people who were commanded to not partake in idolatry would go and give themselves to other idols. Because if you were a woman who couldn't have children, you wanna just kinda hedge all your bets. I'll pray a little to Yahweh, but then I'll, I'll go up to the temple at Ashtaroth and I'll participate in that. And if you're the husband, sure, I'll cover all my bases too, honey. I will definitely go up and I will worship at that altar so we can have a child. Do you see how perverted and, and bizarre this gets? It gets even weirder because the, the Canaanite god, Baal, the weather god, the idea was now we're not just talking about in your family and getting more children. Now what we're talking about is being able to get enough rain in order to make your crops grow. And so the way that you get the God of the weather to get your crops to grow is you kind of, you, you, you have to get the, 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 the process of worship going. So you would also go to a temple of Baal and there would be prostitutes there that you could participate in because your actions with that prostitute would stir the God to then spread water out in your field and produce a harvest. These aren't just like weird superstitious, like, like I'm just gonna go up and I'm just gonna you know, say this little prayer and just kinda touch this idol's belly and then run away and pretend. No, this was a full on, you participated in disgusting ways with these idols. This is why God is commanding his people to not participate in this kind of stuff. 
Now, when I describe this, you're like, nah, that seems weird. I don't know why we're even like talking about that. Seems so ancient. No one really does that anymore. Until you start using this Bible as a lens to view the world, and all of a sudden, all the modern obsessions with sexuality and nature start making a whole lot more sense. You see where I'm going with this? I told you last week, these foreign gods, they haven't gone away. Their judgment day is one day when the Lord returns. And so what are they doing in the meantime? They're causing trouble. They're taking new forms. They're creating sexual revolutions. They're challenging an entire young generation to reconsider what their sexuality looks like. That's what's going on. It seems ancient and foreign until you start using this as a lens to view the world. And I'm telling you, this book is the only thing that makes everything you are seeing today make sense. Nothing makes sense until you look at it through this lens. So why is Samuel calling Israel to repentance and why are we looking at this today? Because the call to Repentance emphasizes two core components, and we like the first one, but we ignore the second one. The first component is if you're turning your heart to the Lord. So the first component of repentance is your heart turns towards God. That is the internal component of repentance. But then put away your idol worship. The putting away of idols is the external component. And what's fascinating about this is that the internal component actually produces the observable external component. My meaning is that your, that your heart, repentance looks like your heart first turning towards God and then that leads to a tangible putting sin to death. Repentance always starts with a posture in your own heart to say, I'm returning to the Lord. All right, brother, praise the Lord. We've all been waiting on you to return to the Lord. But that internal decision better start producing some external observable evidence or that internal turn may not actually be real. Faith without works is dead. This idea that until your heart turns and then you put away the idols, we're all really wondering whether your heart turned. Now, an interesting component about this that we need to touch on is that this doesn't work backwards. You can't start with the observable external stuff you can't start trying to clean up your, light, you, your life. You can't try to kick a habit and then expect that because that sin and that habit and all that stuff, all those idols are gone, now your heart's going to turn towards the Lord. You can kick a habit for a little while, but until you come to a place where you love something more than that habit, that habit's coming back. And it's coming back seven times worse than it did before. Zach, will you turn the air conditioners off for me? Thank you. Amen. <laughs> Somebody with fat metabolism is like, I'm dying in here. Everybody else is like, it ain't, I'm hot. The point to this is that Samuel's pattern for repentance is a pattern that carries all through the New Testament. 
And it's a pattern we should be observing today. If you want real change in your life, it starts getting on, by getting on your knees and asking the Lord, Lord, change my life, change my heart, change my desires, my motivation. I want my heart to turn to you. I wanna love you more than I love this addiction. I wanna love you more than I love talking this way. I wanna love you more than I love money or power or prestige or being known or being in the middle of gossip. I've gotta love you more than I love this thing because if I don't and I just get rid of it for a little while, it's gonna be back in a month. Until I treasure Christ above all things, that one thing I don't treasure him above will come back. So this is what Samuel is letting everyone know. If you want real transformation, Israel, I'm glad that your heart is turning but put away your idols. Let's go to verse seven. It says, now the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines then went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord of Israel, and the Lord answered him. And as Samuel was offering the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. So this is fascinating. The moment Israel turned to the Lord, their faith was tested. The moment they said, all right, I'm gonna start taking things in my life seriously. I'm gonna start putting away the idols. I'm here, I'm at, the, I'm at, at this gathering and and Samuel's praying for us and we're pouring out the water and there's lots of tears and there's crying and I'm telling the Lord, I'm gonna trust you. The next time things get tough, I'm gonna trust you. And all of a sudden you hear off in the distance, horse, horse hooves. You're standing there, Lord, I trust you, I trust you. And all of a sudden, all right, hey, how about right now? How about you trusting me right now at this moment? So the question is, will Israel keep their faith? Are they gonna run? Are they gonna try and find some way to make an alliance with some foreign nation in order to come and back up their power? Israel cries out and asks Samuel, please don't stop crying out to the Lord for us. Pray to God that he would save us from the hands of the Philistines. And at that moment that Samuel starts praying, there's a thunder from heaven and it freaks the Philistines out. Now that's interesting. Why did thunder scare the Philistines? Because these guys understand something that we've lost. Every battle is fought in two realms. There's the realm we see, and then there's another realm of battle is waging. And so when these Philistines showed up to make war with Israel, and all of a sudden the sky started thundering, they realized, uh oh, 
Yahweh's here. The same Yahweh that plagued us for seven months with tumors and rats. It sent their entire army into confusion and Israel took advantage of the confusion and drove the Philistines as far as Beth Car. In order to illustrate this and show you where we're talking about, I got a map. So we're gonna start off similar to last week. I took out all the continents. I figure you guys, you got it. So we're gonna zoom in on that area. And what we're looking at here is Mizpah, that's the, the place where this whole worship ceremony is going. And then I left Ekron and Gath up there. Those are the most eastern Philistine cities that participated in this war. There are western cities as we saw last week. There's five. They're more on the coast and below Gath. But those are the two cities that we're looking at today. So in the initial battle, while Israel is at Mizpah, Ekron and Gath, if you play through the animation, they routed together up to Mizpah. All right, pause there. So everything is happening, the war is going on, and all of a sudden there's a thunder, and all of the Philistines go nuts, and Israel takes advantage of the confusion and drives the Philistines, you go to the next animation, to Beth Car. We're gonna pause right there, we'll get to it later, you'll actually see it in the next section we're gonna read. They didn't actually stop at Beth Car. We're told that they pushed the Philistines all the way back to Ekron and to Gath, and they actually took control over Ekron and Gath. They made those Philistine cities Israelite cities again. So, this picture, before we move on, I don't want you to miss what's going on in this picture in light of the message series that we studied previously, which was in Hebrews. Can you see something, can, can, you, can you draw an interesting line between what you're seeing in seven through 11 and what we read in Hebrews? Samuel is a foreshadow of Christ as our priest. And he's standing on this mountain as an intercessor between God's people and God. And God's people, we, we were told in Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, that the people of God come to the mountain of God to pour out their hearts. And we're told in Hebrews 4, 14, that there's Jesus, this great high priest who's on this mountain, and he's living to mediate for us and make intercession for us. All the while, 1 Peter 5, 8, the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion. This picture that we see is a picture of our lives today, and it's designed to give us, we'll get there in a moment, uh, a form of remembrance that God was faithful at a time in Israel's life where they wholly devoted themselves to the Lord and the enemy came knocking, and today, where you might even this morning be making a decision to wholly devote yourself to the Lord, and while you're sitting there making that decision, you're already starting to be haunted in the back of your mind of what that decision's gonna mean. Or, the moment you make a decision, Lord, I'm gonna return to you. I'm gonna start putting that stuff away. The moment you start thinking about that, all of a sudden, in the middle of the worship service, you get a text from somebody who wants to start distracting you. The idea that this is a picture of where we live is profound and I don't want you to miss it. Because if you just keep crying out to Christ, 
if you just keep lifting his up, his name up, if you just keep the faith, the question that you have from the text as you read it, what's Israel gonna do? Are they gonna trust in the Lord? Are they gonna make some form? That same question is lying on your shoulders today. What are you gonna do? Are you gonna keep trusting or are you gonna find another way? Are you gonna find a shortcut? Are you gonna find a faster way or a cheaper way? All right, let's move on to verse 12. So, big, big congratulations to Israel. They finally got it right. Cried out to the Lord. The enemy is making war at their heels, and they said, no, we're not gonna move. We're gonna let the Lord fight this battle for him. And he just thundered and caused confusion. And then there was a win. What did Samuel do immediately after this? Verse 12, it says, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. To the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. That's what we just saw on that map. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. And then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he also judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Remember Ramah, when we started the story, that's where his mom's from. So he moved back in with his parents. (laughs) I'm kidding, he probably didn't do that. So to commemorate God's faithfulness, Samuel set up a stone of remembrance, and he called this stone Ebenezer. And Ebenezer means stone of help. Now he made this monument to remind Israel that God has helped us in the past, and therefore he will help us in the future. So I want you to picture this. Picture a couple generations past and two boys are playing out near Mizpah and they see this massive stone and one of them's like, man, what is that thing? And the other one says, ah, I remember that. My grandpa used to tell me that story about how all Israel gathered together to rededicate themselves to the Lord and the moment they were doing it, the Philistines came and tried to make war against them, but they kept the faith and God showed himself strong and defeated the Philistines. Grandpa tells us that story all the time, and every time he tells it, he says, if you don't believe me, go out and look at the stone of remembrance. That stone is a stone of help. God helped his people, and he will help you today. And just imagine this kid telling the other kid, yeah, man, so like, so anytime I have a tough time on a test or something's going wrong, I, I don't know, I just kind of look at that stone, and I just remember, like, if God helped Israel back then, like, he'll probably help me today. The idea of having a stone of remembrance is a faith builder. It's a reminder of God's faithfulness so that you can build on this as you move forward. And that word, Ebenezer, is where the writer of the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, wrote 
Um, here I raise my Ebenezer. You ever wonder, like, I don't, I don't know why we're saying this, but here I raise my Ebenezer. That's an Ebenezer. Here I raise my Ebenezer, and Ebenezer is a stone of help. It's a thing that you raise up in remembrance of God's faithfulness to get you through the next thing that you need him to be faithful for. It's essentially a testimony, a tangible testimony, a thing that you look to and you raise high and you say, God has done this so many times in so many ways. This thing reminds me to keep building my faith because he's not going to let me down now. In my Christian walk, I have a few stones of help that remind me of his faithfulness. I won't share all of them, but I'll be honest with you, you as a church are one of them. I remember a time where I was pretty sure I was done with ministry. And I felt God pull that tug and say, I want you to plant a church in Tallahassee. And I was like, okay. It's one, one thing this town needs is another church, right? But as I stand before you today and I look at what God has done, I'm, I'm reminded, no, he helps his people to grow in their knowledge of the word. He helps his people to stir that desire on the inside of you to want more and more and more of God. I remember a summer camp that I led when I was a young man, I don't know, man in my 20s, and one of the nights that I was speaking, I wanted some kind of Ebenezer for these people, and so I was teaching on us being pottery and clay and, and how the, the potter, he has no problem smashing us in order to put us back together. And I had this big clay pot and this big mallet and I smashed it and there were pieces everywhere. In the end, I asked the kids to come forward and grab that shard of pottery. I still have that shard of pottery today because it is a stone of help, a symbol of remembrance, a faith builder to me that I'm not out here just trying to find my way and do my own thing. I'm being led by a God who loves being among his people and chooses to use his people to bless and grow his people. It's a faith builder. But here's the other thing. There's another stone of remembrance that's even better than any stone of testimony or stone of help that you could think of today. And it is Christ himself. We're told in 1 Peter 2.7 that Christ was the stone that the builders rejected, the chief cornerstone. So if you're having, if, if you're sitting there and you're like, I, I, I got nothing, I, I don't know, I don't have a testimony. I can't think of a single thing he's ever done in my life. First, I feel bad for you, but second, Christ is enough. Brother, lift him high and fix your eyes on him as the stone of help and you will be able to get through whatever it is that you're currently struggling with. Start making a habit of looking at the testimonies that God builds inside of you and staring at Christ. We'll conclude this section with Samuel traveling from town to town um, just so you have a reference for where these towns are We'll go to the map 
Mizpah, Ramah. Ramah is where he lived down in the south, so he would travel up to Mizpah, Bethel, over to Gilgal, and then circuit his, his way back. Not a real fancy map, but I, I thought it might help. The, uh, the blue water over here on the right-hand side is the Dead Sea, Mediterranean Sea is over on the left, and it's just kind of north of the area that we were talking about earlier. Mizpah was where the whole battle happened, uh, but it gives you a sense for what Samuel was doing with his time as he started to grow older. Now let's pick up the story in verse one of chapter eight. It says, when Samuel became old, he and his sons, excuse me, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abiah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes, and they perverted justice. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the king displeased Samuel, excuse me, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, it's good advice. When you're upset, pray to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing so to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways the king who shall reign over them. So many years pass between seven and eight. Samuel starts growing older. He has sons, and we're told that his sons aren't great men. They're breaking what they're told in Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 20, to not take bribes, to not pervert justice. They're doing literally the things that the word of God tells them not to do. And Israel at this point says, you know what? I think we're kind of done having judges. You're getting older and your sons are no different than the sons of Gideon or the sons of Eli, and we've kind of had enough with the whole judges thing. So can we please finally have a king? Now that's an interesting request because a lot of people think like Israel was never supposed to have a king. But in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 19, there is a provision that when Israel comes into the promised land, they are allowed to actually have a king. Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 19. It says, when the people of God come into the promised land, they are, there is a provision for them to have a king. There's only a few stipulations. One, I choose the king. Yahweh chooses the king. And this king has to do, has to follow some guidelines, like not have many wives. <laughs> not pervert justice not take bribes, to honor the commandments of the Lord. So there actually is provision for Israel to have a king. So if Israel could have a king, then what's the issue with the request? 
Well, the issue isn't necessarily the request, the issue is the reason for the request. Why is Israel wanting a king? So here's what's happening. Israel comes to Samuel under the guise that the problem is Samuel's boys. We need a king because your sons are evil leaders. We don't want to follow them so that you're, you're Samuel, you're the reason why we need a king. But the Lord knows everyone's heart. And the Lord exposes their heart. They don't want a king because of Samuel. They want a king because they have rejected Yahweh as their king. They don't want leadership that God establishes over them. They want leadership that they can establish over themselves. And the biggest request they give is, we want to be like every other nation that we're surrounded by. So their request is essentially, we don't want to be unique among the nations. We don't want the mandate that you have given us to be unique in the way we eat, in the way that we dress, in the way that we worship. Have you ever read through the Old Testament, you're like, man, these are some weird laws. Like, why all the weird food laws? I'll tell you why all the weird food laws. Because every single time a Hebrew would sit down at a table to eat, they had to think through what God commanded them to do and not do. Every meal was a reminder that they were unique and set apart from among the nations. And it didn't start with the meals, it started with the way you dressed in the morning. When you wake up, your closet can't be filled with these clothes that are of, of, of mixed uh, fabrics. The way that you worship, it can't be like the other. Why? Because every time you go to worship, you're reminded that you are special and unique and called out from among the nations. Every morning when you wake up and get dressed, you are reminded that the way I dress myself is, is, is specific because this is how Yahweh called it to be. I am this way because I have been called out from among the nations and I am separate and different. And Israel said, I don't want that anymore. I want to reject Yahweh is my king, I want to reject all of his rules. I don't want anything to do with what he's asking me to. I want to assimilate like all the other nations. I want to conform. It's very similar to a cry that you see happening in churches today. We don't want to be the church anymore. It upsets people. It offends the children and the old people and the ladies and the men and the men who are think they're ladies and the ladies who think they're men. It upsets everyone, so we are going to change the way things work. We're gonna soften the rough edges a little bit. We're gonna change some things about our membership. We're gonna stop requiring so much. There's not gonna be any demands. We're not gonna teach the people of God, the word of God. We're gonna talk about what's happening in politics and what's happening in the news of the day and then eventually we'll get it back to the word. But there's no foundation. We wanna conform and make our places of worship as comfortable as we possibly can for the off chance that a non-believer might wander in and say, what is this place? The idea to conform, the desire to want to be like the rest of the nations, it isn't new. 
And it seems on its surface like such a sensible request. Why wouldn't we want to reach more people for God? And if, and if this is the way we do it, why wouldn't we want to make these adjustments in order to reach more people for God? It seems sensible to say, look, we can reach more people if we have more influence. And so if we just kind of talk like some of the people in the world and, and conform our speech to them, then we can garner more influence and, and then we could reach more people. It seems so, sense, uh, so sensible, it seems so logical, <clears throat> but it's so godless. And sometimes the Lord will answer your prayers to show you how godless your requests are. And that's what happens in verse 10. Israel is told, you can have a king, but here's the warning. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. And he will take the tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because you asked for a government to rule over you. Sorry because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So Samuel stands before Israel and gives one of the most heartbreaking speeches ever. This new form of government that you want, that you keep asking for, that you're voting for, is going to increase your taxes it's going to take your family members. It's going to rob you of your own livelihood. You want something to lord over you? It will. Because it's made up of fallen men who will take advantage of the power they have been given. And they will lord it over you. And you'll cry out to the Lord, we've made a mistake, Israel. But God won't answer. Instead, Israel's reply to this warning is, no, give us a king anyway. He can judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Essentially, all of your education about a king isn't helpful. We want one anyway. 
Now, I was reading a commentary this week that just, I don't know, it just kind of jumped out at me. There's this guy named Dale Davis. He wrote a commentary on 1 Samuel, and he says that this section is the best section or example in Scripture to reveal the foolishness of the education fallacy. The idea being, here's the fallacy, that if people know that something will destroy them, they'll leave it alone. All we need is enough clear education if we can just clearly communicate and inform and educate people, they will be transformed. I remember the commercial that started coming on the television around 1987 of a frying pan and an egg. Remember this? This is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. It's that commercial single-handedly ended the drug crisis in America. (laughs) No, it didn't do anything because education can't transform people. That isn't what the mo- that, that's not the thing that gets on the inside of us. And the reason why education is not the single thing that transforms people is because there's a big difference between knowing the truth and loving the truth. And church, that's what I want for you. I want you to know this Bible inside and out. I want you to be familiar with not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament too. I want you to become familiar with the Psalms, so familiar that you can quote entire Psalms in your car when you're riding to work. When the enemy starts coming behind you and and entering and and injecting these, trying to, to haunt you with these dark thoughts and prey on your flesh, tempt you with things that you know you're a sucker for, I want you to start thinking through the Proverbs. I want you praying through the the Lord's Prayer. I want you walking through the book of Revelation. I, I want you to think about Peter's commands. I want you to think about stories like this. The moment Israel is standing there saying, all right, Lord, we're coming back to you. Immediately, the enemy is coming up behind them. What are you gonna do now? Are you really coming back to me? Are you really gonna trust me? Are you gonna make some foreign alliance? Are you gonna make some deal with somebody that's gonna make this pain go away? I want you to know this book, but that's not all I want. I don't want you to just know this book. I don't want you to just be educated and familiar with it. I want you to love it. I want you to treasure it. I want you to bury this book deep inside of your heart. I want this, the scripture, I want these words, I want them flowing through your veins. I want them popping into your mind when you wake up in the morning. I want it to not just be something that you know, but it's something that you love and cherish and you write everywhere. I want it on the, 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 um, the wallpaper, on your screens, on your phone. I want it on your, uh, your refrigerators at home and on your mirrors. I want it everywhere because I, I want you to not just know it, I want you to love it. But why do I want you to love it? Because I want you to love him. Because this is his word. And this, his word, took on flesh and dwelt among us. And I want you to love his word and I want you to love him. Because here's what happens when you start loving God and his word. All of a sudden, it gets really easy easy 
to put away idols. I said this at the beginning and this is how I want to end. The reason why it's been so difficult for you to kick that habit or get over that thing or move forward in your life is because, you're not going to like this, but here's the truth, you love that thing more than you love him. You're like, no, I don't. I hate that thing. I hate that thing. I hate, but that thing does give me some kind of identity. If I didn't didn't have that thing, I don't know what I would be. If I didn't have that hurt, I don't, I don't know who I am. That's all I've ever been. I've only ever been the victim. I hate that, but if I'm honest with myself, I love that. I don't love it in the way that I love ice cream or my parents, but, but in a weird, twisted way, I love the comfort and identity and security that that hurt or that pain or that sin or that addiction or that habit brings to my life. And if I let that go, I don't know what else I have. This is why I'm telling you, I don't want you to just know the word, I want you to love the word because when you start loving the word, when you start loving something more than that pain or that addiction or that old bad habit, you're gonna find that it's unbelievably easy to let it go. Putting idols away starts by loving something more than that. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you wanna hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.